welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. I'm Oshan Jaro, and this podcast is an exploration of how to bring contemplative practice and cultural theory into conversation with one another. And I'm thinking I might start using these introductions as a space to briefly tie the conversations I'm having back into the questions that this podcast exists to explore. So in that spirit, today's guest is Carl Weiderquist, and uh, the episode today I'm calling the Basic Income Episode. Carl has been an active supporter of Universal Basic Income since 1980, uh, which is almost 40 years. And during that time, he's earned two PhDs, one in economics and another in political theory from Oxford. And he works on theories of justice and freedom as the motivation for adopting a basic income. I have been interested in basic income for about four years now. Uh, It was the first policy that kind of lured me back into economics from the phase where I was more exclusively interested in meditation and psychedelics and uh, consciousness from the individual angle. Uh, I was growing disenchanted with the scope of contemplative discourse. I, I felt that it ignored one of the most important factors in the construction of conscious experience, which is you know, that matrix of, of daily economic realities that we're all participating in, and the, the intimacy of how economic circumstances shape our everyday lives. Uh, there's this idea of a bodhisattva in Buddhism where when uh, somebody reaches enlightenment, right, from that point on, they don't just kind of retire into their enlightenment, but they dedicate themselves to the enlightenment of all other sentient beings, which to me is, communicates that enlightenment is fundamentally democratic, right? When you wipe away the distinction between self and other, you can't kind of retreat into retirement, right? Flourishing becomes something that has to occur on a collective scale. So I came back to economics largely because it seems that a certain degree of economic well-being affords people more stewardship over how they spend their time and how they might explore living their lives. And if we want this to happen at a collective scale, affording people an economic baseline from which they're more enabled to develop their own contemplative orientation to life, right? Not meaning everyone meditates, but more along the lines of Mary Oliver's uh, instructions for living a life when she says, pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it, right? Kind of cultivating the kind of attention and perceptual skills that unearth a sense of bewilderment and not just hedonistically enjoying those wonderful states, right? Not becoming an ecstasy junkie, but telling about it and sharing and building community around those explorations, right? Bringing them back into daily life. So in contrast to the kind of abstract economic policies I was learning in college, basic income offers an immediate and direct change to the composition of everyday life, right? It seems to inject uh, a greater degree of freedom and autonomy and choice into the stew of incentives and imperatives that govern how we spend our time on a daily basis. But uh, it is also quite expensive and would dramatically alter the mentality of modern-day capitalism. And nothing that promises such a drastic change should be considered lightly. So in the spirit of further understanding why we should be open to such a dramatic policy, Carl and I spoke for a little over two hours uh, about all things basic income. A few of the topics that we got into 
Uh, for the first half hour or so, we looked at the relationship between basic income and freedom. And then around the 37 minute mark, we turn into a more logistical approach, looking at the cost of basic income, how to pay for it, uh, some critiques, both from conservatives and progressives, um, some alternatives like a negative income tax. And then we dig into some broader economic questions like the relationship between private property and public wealth, growth and degrowth, and so on. All right, enjoy the episode. And if you really enjoy it, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes or sharing it with a friend or on social media, or even checking out the Patreon page, all of which will be linked from the Amusing Mind website. All right, here is Carl Weidenquist. I, I supported, I first supported basic income. Yeah, I became a supporter. I'm going on my 40th anniversary will be February 7th, 1980. Wow. And I started writing about it in 1996, started publishing in 1999. All right. A veteran. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's actually interesting. That was one of the places I wanted to kind of uh, start out by asking. I don't know how trustworthy Wikipedia will be here. However, it informs yeah. me that uh, you first heard about basic income f in in 1980 by watching Milton Friedman's TV show. Is that the case? That's right. That's where I heard about it. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And so what was so that was in 80 and you said you started kind of uh, writing about it in 96. Was it a, a continuous thread when you first heard about it? It was kind of you knew at that moment or did it kind of go dormant and get sparked up later on? No, it, it was it was a continuous thread that mm. for a while I thought after seeing that television show, I thought I was a libertarian. Right. Um, but I looked at the negative income tax as being really the centerpiece of all that, that it really should be strong and generous and should get everyone out of poverty. And you can't do that and be a libertarian. I found myself moving farther and farther from libertarianism um, right. to the point where I don't think I've ever written anything favorable about it. And I've written uh, books and articles criticizing the idea. But uh, negative income tax or guaranteed income was uh, became really a centerpiece of my thinking about what is a just society. I began to see it as a challenge to the left as much as the right, because I used to say that didn't or the right wing didn't want to eliminate poverty, and the left wing didn't know how. The left of center in the U.S. at that time was really heavily on the defensive. It's like, no, the existing welfare state we have is is perfect. Every criticism you could make to say it better is just playing into the hands of the Reaganites or the or right. the welfare reformists or all the people later, and that you've just got to defend the existing welfare state or go all the way to socialism, but admitting that the welfare state could uh, could be improved was considered a, a bad thing. So there's hardly anybody in the U.S. that was interested in basic income. And I was like, but if you want to make lives better for the least advantage, you've got to be for this. Look at all the crap we're doing that that is counterproductive. Um, yeah. Now, you know, some of it is not counterproductive. Uh, some of it's very useful. But nothing is as good for meeting your needs as you see them than cash that you can spend as you wish. Nothing shows more respect for people who have less privileges than you. It is to make sure they've got enough cash to meet your needs. 
uh, to meet their needs. So that was always a, uh, from that point or very quickly after that, I knew that I wanted to work on social justice and I wanted to make the basic income a centerpiece of that. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. So I had to go through high school. Then I went through college and majored in economics and worked here and there for a while. And then finally decided to get a PhD in economics. But I didn't write my thesis on basic income. And so it was only when I was finishing, when I finished my thesis in 1996, that I was arguing about politics with Michael Lewis Mm. uh, at the the 7A diner. I don't even know if it's still there uh, uh, in, in New York. And we hit on the one thing we, we you know, we talked, what, what do we really need next in this country was, uh, and we hit on the we agreed basic income, even though we disagreed on a lot of other things. And so we decided we should write on it. And we co-authored a paper there, and I've been writing on it ever since. Wow. So when you were, when you were doing, getting your PhD, and I believe you got a, you got a second PhD, is that correct, in political theory? That's correct. I got a PhD in economics because I wanted to create a just society. And I believe that to create a just society, you had to understand economics. You had to know what works. Right. But after, what was it, nine years of study of economics between undergrad and grad school, I found that the solution was really simple. You know, it's the same thing I started with when I heard about it in high school that this really works. It is not economically difficult to eliminate poverty. And that the the barriers are these ethical barriers. So I found myself writing about ethical issues. But as an economist, that is considered a branch of economics, is normative economics. But it is not anything you can make your career in. So as um, so as a, an economist interested in nor- normative economics, I had to go and make my career in other issues and write about this on the side while I was trying to hold down an okay job that, that, that had a lot of my other time dedicated to summarizing other people's research hmm. or doing research that wasn't my first choice. And I said to myself, well, how can I do these ethical issues full time? And I, it Eventually, really, what, the way to do that full time is to get a PhD in either philosophy or political theory. And when I couldn't get that idea out of my head for years, that was not, such an outlandish idea to get a second PhD. But after three years, when I couldn't get that idea out of my head, I applied to one school that was Oxford, and I got in. And uh, I so I've been a political theorist ever since. And that's why I have. That's why I have two PhDs, and that's <laughs> proved to be useful. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned something, and we kind of touched on this right in the beginning, but you said as you were looking at justice, you decided that if you wanted to create a just society, you had to know economics. And yeah. this, so that mirrors my own experience where when I was off on the meditation kick in India, and I was very much interested in, in the exploration of consciousness and kind of the different potentialities, the different way that you can experience your own experience and so on. And I began to think more and more when I looked at like, what are the determinants or the elements that are constructing my experience? What are the forces that are kind of acting upon consciousness? I, I saw that like it's an the everyday kind of composition of our lives generally has to do with economics. When you look at what people do on a day-to-day basis, how they spend their time, because consciousness, especially as I came to understand it, is very much 
in a in a dialogue always with what you are doing on a day-to-day basis with the with your environment this kind of thing and i began to think that if you want to get serious about contemplative practice you also have to know economics and especially if you want to get serious about participating in some kind of change or evolution in in the environments that we get to live economics seemed like the language to me that really was the the base kind of construction of of the shape of our days. So I, I kind of got that same sense that economics is this underlying language. Well, what I found is that you don't need sophisticated economics. Most of the economics has been said right. that that if you uh, if you know that it is affordable, it is it is sustainable. There's there's ways to make it work, and it is effective. The economics questions of basic income, a lot of them have been answered long ago. However, what I find is that it's useful to have two PhDs because questions do come up that 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 are important to the debate, like how much does basic income cost? And what's wh- uh, why aren't all these people who have all this enthusiasm for having experiments why aren't they asking the right questions and discussing the limitations of experiments? Hmm. So I've written economics papers on those sorts of issues and or even a book on, on economics, which is essentially the philosophy of science. And having that background in economics is, uh, has been really useful in uh, being able to, to write about basic income from both the economic and the ethical side. Right, right. On what you were saying about people being taken up by economics, well, whereas I don't think you need a lot of economic theory to deal with that. Maybe you do in ways that I haven't thought of. But the issue I find there is especially when you have people taking up taking up so much of their lives, figuring out how to meet their most basic needs. It interferes with our ability to mature and our ability to build our careers. We're so focused on keeping ourselves alive, young in life, that we can't build our careers of how we really want to contribute and do something good in this uh, in this economy. Then, so because we have to do whatever will keep us alive and stay on that track, and that takes up so much of the time that we could devote into doing something that's ultimately more useful. Right. Yeah, I'd like to. You mentioned a couple things. So I'd love to kind of dig into some of the kind of groundwork logistics, like the cost of basic income, uh, different methods to pay for it, alternatives. You mentioned the negative income tax, and also I think there have been some pretty interesting critiques of basic income coming from the kind of hyper progressive side on where they're worrying it's not getting deep enough into the kind of wealth inequality that that lies upstream of of income. But maybe a, a fun place to kind of start and set the groundwork for the rest of the discussion. Um, would be to talk about kind of the the inmost or the driving motivation for basic income because one of the one of the things I've noticed recently is is kind of the the latest wave of media on basic income is very much coming as a response to automation and technology. Um, it's also contextualized as as a measure for welfare and poverty um, elimination essentially. And these are all really interesting, but but to me, there's a kind of the first reason or, or the reason I'm so enthralled by the idea is the relationship between basic income and freedom. And this is something you've done a lot of writing on. 
But to me, when I think about what basic income offers or the potential kind of society it sets the conditions uh, to emerge, it's very much about kind of advancing a kind of freedom that might never have existed before and systematizing that, right? Kind of translating discourse around freedom from an abstraction, as I think it very much has been in the neoliberal era, into more of an actual tangible, concrete kind of design feature of the system we're living in. And so maybe one place to start would be to ask you about the kind of landscape of motivations for basic income, because there's a, a number of different avenues into the discussion. Um, and I don't want to assume that that you think freedom is the most important. So I, I want to ask what for you stands out as the most kind of important and pressing motivations and some that might be a little farther out from center. Yes. I, uh, uh, as you probably know from my work, freedom is the central reason that I support basic income, although I find it to be coincident with the freedom from poverty Mm -hmm. and the freedom from desperation, the freedom from desperate want. Because if you're not free from desperate want, um, you are really not free in any meaningful sense. Poverty is a lack of access to resources. Uh, And we've had that in our past that For most of the time human beings have been on this planet, humans have had direct access to resources where they didn't have to take anybody's orders. They didn't have to go out and find a job or a client to take orders for in order to to keep themselves alive. There were resources available. They could hunt. They could gather. They could fish. They could farm. They could could, uh, start their own business or their cooperative with with whoever wants to work uh, with them. And this was possible until things like the enclosure movement in Europe and the colonial movement around the rest of the world that took away access to common resources from common people and gave it to people who were already privileged. And then we set up an economy where, where, where the vast majority of us have to go and take orders from somebody with enough property to give us to uh, keep us alive. And so we've artificially created property and forced most of humanity into this position where that is the ultimate threat. If you don't do what you're told, if you don't take this job or meet these requirements for this redistributed program, we're going to put you in poverty until you learn that doing what we say is really important. So we've created poverty, we're forcing people into it and using it as a threat to get people with fewer privileges to provide services with people who have more privileges, the people who control the resources of the earth, when in any sensible way, it would be the opposite. People who control more resources than everybody else should be paying them back for those resources. So um, then, and if you look at it that way, a basic income provides a triple function. It maintains your freedom so people aren't forcing you into poverty and aren't forcing you to do things for them to get yourself out of poverty. And it compensates you for the fact that others control, use, or own more resources than you do. Um, all of those are connected to freedom in different ways. And all of that is a central reason why I think any free society in the world today needs a basic income. And if you make it impossible for someone else to work 
themselves by taking all the resources, you owe them compensation. Mm. And compensation is always an unconditional cash. You know, if I break your leg, I don't say, well, I'll give you a job. <laughs> say, I'll pay for your leg to be fixed and to compensate you for all the days of work you're going right. to lose. So basic income is compensation for the fact that long ago, the creation of the private property-based economy has uh, made it impossible for us to work for ourselves. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's informative to think about how private property has changed what it means to be free or changed the, the notion of accessibility to resources. Because if you think back prior to private property, if we go all the way back to hunter-gatherer, but it's even, you don't have to go that far back, people could use anything they could functionally get their hands on, right? No one had exclusionary ownership to resources that uh, led to people having to pay for access to them. And when you have private property implemented, especially to the degree that it is today, um, you've changed the relationship of how people secure access to what they need in order to survive. And with everything being owned today, what you have is people needing to to rent or, or purchase access to it. And it, it's very interesting to think about how that has changed what it means to be free and how we pursue kind of uh, keeping an, an open channel to to get what we need. But especially when you start talking about this idea of kind of what it was like before private property or these kinds of things, I wonder how you feel about in what degree is basic income pursuing a kind of return to that? You talked a lot about shepherding and, and nomadic kind of uh, freedom. In what way is basic income about a return to a kind of freedom we might have lost? and in, Or in what sense is it more of kind of a moving into something that we might not have experienced before? In that sense, in the sense you brought up earlier, yes, basic income is making you free in another sort of a way. Because you have it in cash, we are each individually free to live without either working for ourselves or for someone else in a lot of ways, but not in every way, because there's some work that we inherently do for ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. Going and shopping is, is a form of working for yourself. And, and sometimes going out and shopping can be more difficult than going out and hunting and gathering and picking up your own stuff. Hunting and gathering can be a lot of fun. It's an awful lot more <laughs> like a game than going out and shopping. Um, also keeping your own house, keeping up your own house. I don't know that basic income completely frees people from, from the need to work for themselves. I don't think it does, but it does create much greater freedom from having to put forth effort, keep themselves alive and, and meet their needs and so forth. Now, people, now, now it will be interesting to see what people will do, will do with it. And people will, and people very often say, well, this is, this is about trust. We need to trust each other to, to do this. And I think really that's the wrong world. It, it is respect. We need to respect each other. Is that We've all earned it. It's unconditional, yet we've all earned it because, because we have our, the access to resources that used to keep us alive has been taken away. So we all deserve it. And it is our respecting each other that we will, we will allow each other to find, once they get that compensation, to find their way in the world and find the way they want to have a meaningful life. Mm. And each individual will do something different. Some people 
probably will use their pool. I could see a bunch of people pooling their basic incomes and buying land and natural resources and starting a farm or a cooperative or a business or something or a back to nature program. Some people will do things like that and other people will uh, use it to build a business. Other use it to build learning. Other use it will, will, will live on that and do philanthropy and other people will simply use it as a cushion as they participate in the, uh, in the regular market economy. We'll all use it in different ways. But the freedom that creates, the freedom that creates to find your own niche and your own contribution without having to just, uh, what gets and who can I take orders from to keep me alive through the next peer pay period? Um, once we're freed from that, there's no telling what kind of impact that will have. Right. And it's when I think about kind of the the differences between uh, the past and and the present and in this context, where where neoliberal the the discourse around freedom where it falls short to me in the in the recent discussion coming out of the neoliberal paradigm is that there's still an element of coercion and the element of coercion is that the freedom that we're really talking about is the freedom to participate in the market, right? It's the freedom to try and earn your living. It doesn't go beyond that. It essentially equates freedom with participating in market dynamics. And I'm not necessarily saying that like neoliberalism is this big evil thing because that element of coercion has really been around in one form or another since the dawn of, of humanity, right? If, if you go back to the hunter-gatherers or even just pre-moderns, it was people always had to expend a certain amount of their time in various forms of labor in order to secure access to resources. Now, whether that was spent uh, goat herding or whether that's spent in a cubicle for 40 hours, there are definitely pros and cons and things to kind of parse out from between those two. But what basic income seems to offer to me is, is a qualitatively different or kind of step forward out of that dynamic that has existed for so long, which is it's actually cutting back on the proportion of your time you need to kind of submit to the coercion of, of securing the basic necessities. And it creates this space that might not have existed before. And I'm, I'm no expert on the time distribution of pre-modern societies. I would be interested in talking to someone about that. But it's, it I seems, you know. Ah, well, go ahead. What do you think? Well, um, the yeah, in, in one of my books, uh, Prehistoric Myths and Modern Political Philosophy, we attack this idea that everybody's better off in uh, a modern state society with a private property rights system than everyone was or would be in a, a non-state society and or a society with a common property regime instead of a private property rights regime. Mm. That argument, people have been making that argument since at least the first Chinese emperor. The first Chinese emperor had a spokesperson make this argument. But uh, uh, it became really important in political philosophy with Thomas Hobbes about 350 years ago. Um, and people make it all over the place. It is used to justify that we don't have to do that much less that much for the for the poor in our own societies because they're all supposedly better off and right. it's also used to justify colonialism yeah because we can go and take over these other societies because ultimately they'll be better off but if you read these people who've made this claim from 
Hobbes and Locke through Kant, uh, Adam Smith through and through 20th century uh, political philosophers such as uh, you know Robert Nozick and uh, and uh, any of the people who are on the, the right of the spectrum will tend to they'll they will make this claim over and over again that everyone is better off. We know that everyone is better off. Even the least among us will is better off. And you will find if you look in all these 350 years of literature, is you find people saying this claim and then providing little or no evidence, usually no evidence whatsoever. Over and over again, they make this claim, everyone is better off. So what we do is we go through in the book and chronicle all the people making this claim and producing no evidence for it and give the reasons they say we're better off. Then we go through the anthropological information and show that it's not true. And we shouldn't expect it to be true because, oh, well, we shouldn't expect it to be obvious. It is not obvious. To know this answer, you have to really know what it's like to be the least advantaged person in our society today. What's it like to be a migrant laborer? What's it like to be a homeless person? What's it like to work in a sweatshop in Sao Paulo? Um, you have to know all of these things. And then you have to compare these things of what's it like to be one of the stateless peoples remaining in the Amazon or the Andaman Islands or, or Borneo or Papua New Guinea, the very few places where, where people are still able to do this. What was it like to live 10,000 or 20,000 years ago? Uh, most people don't know a lot about either side of that comparison. And it's really just coming from an inheritance of this prejudice that this prejudice that Hobbes and Locke shared that civilized man is so much better off than the naked savage. That's right. where it comes from. And if, and then so we look at the evidence and we see, we see in what ways are people better off. And you find out that there's – when one of the ways that people are better, people do live quite a bit longer. Um, but that's only become true around the world, say, in the last 50 years. At the time that Hobbes and Locke were writing, people in England had no higher, no longer life expectancy than, than hunter-gatherers, uh, the people in stateless wow. societies. Um, it wasn't, and it wasn't true for the average person in Europe, perhaps until the mid to late 1800s, and it hasn't been true for... Uh, the average person in most countries around the world until the last probably 50 years. But it is still, it is still, there are still a lot of people who die young from preventable diseases that have been created by our system. So we might giving some people a longer life, we're giving other people shorter life. And getting back to what you actually asked about, which was people's time, is that one of the ways we look at people being better off is supposedly our inventions have saved us from backbreaking toil and shortened our work hours. But you find this is not true. Most of the benefits of our great inventions is to create more time for the privileged. They've benefited enormously with, with having all this time available. But the least advantage, actually, from what we can tell, um, have only had a small reduction of uh, have, have they've had a reduction of hours relative to what they were working uh, one or two hundred years ago. But if you go back farther than that, it's probably not true that 
they were the, that they're working less. If you look at the surviving nomadic hunter-gatherer societies, you find a lot of them work fairly short hours. Now we don't have good information. We don't. We only have a few of them observed fairly well. But even the ones who work fairly fairly much, if you want to, the ones that that have been observed to work the most, the Aceh tribe in uh, Paraguay who were still nomadic hunter-gatherers through the 1980s, the Aceh tribe would work 47 hours a week. Now, that's a lot less than a lot of people in Paraguay and sweatshops are working, but it's also probably less than you and I are working if you include commuting, mm. if you include shopping, if you include housekeeping, which if you look at the kind of time statistics that they called work, it included making dinner. It included walking. It included all these sorts of things. So the, uh, and, and it did not, it wasn't able to say to what extent it, it, uh, hunting was more like a job to them or like a game. Right. Um, is, is, is a lot of people like to hunt for a hobby. Um, a lot of people retire and go and fish all day. Um, and that would, you know, if you compare that to a forager who fishes a lot, is that really work? Mm. Whereas going in and taking orders at a sweatshop or at McDonald's, that's work. The kind of stuff I do, not all of my stuff is work. Some I love doing and I do it anyway. But uh, this, these comparable figures, we find that actually, yes, people are working as much or more now than they did when they were freer. They're working, they're working less now than they were under capitalism 150 years ago during the early part of the Industrial Revolution. It has some of that benefit has trickled down to most people. But to go to people who actually are in the societies most different from us and really lack these institutions, we'll find people are are working as much or more now than they were then. Right. And that, that's another kind of interesting forecast for basic income that um, that I like thinking about is, is the role it can play in helping to transition a lot of what we do from labor to leisure. But yeah. the, the way in which that forces us to really expand our conception of what leisure is, because leisure is not kind of the downtime where you relax and unwind, right? Leisure can actually be a productive function as well. And I think what you're pointing to is a lot of the stuff that that we might mistakenly label as as labor that was going on are things that people left to their own devices might actually prefer or voluntarily do. Um, and it's it's definitely, it feels like it would be a great step forward to transition the distribution of time use out of labor and into leisure and to explore how the, the fruits and the productive capacities that come out of people in these modes of leisure can still contribute to the overall kind of functioning and output and, and well-being of, of society on the whole. Yeah, leisure leisure is a great thing. I mean, the, the function of our work time is to give us leisure time. And a, a lot of the work that we ask people to do is unpleasant and not that valuable. So, uh, so w this idea that work is always better than leisure, and leisure is bad. Leisure is drinking. Leisure is doing drugs. Leisure is playing video games. Right. It's such a lack of respect for people who are going out to find meaning in their lives mm -hmm. and can find it in many ways. And a lot of the things we do in our leisure time are more meaningful to us than the things that we do in our job time. And we all owe more of that. You realize 
that in the last 41 years, our economy has doubled in size. Our wealth is twice today what it was in 1978, our national wealth, well, our national income. But yet, wages for the average person have barely risen in that time. The salaries that, that, you're, that people way, way up into the middle class are making are li- little or no higher than a comparable person 41 years ago. All that benefit has gone to the top 1%. It wasn't like that earlier in the century. Now, so, but that means that we could all be working the same and consuming twice as much, or we could be consuming the same as we were in the 70s and working half as much. And most people are getting neither. We are working the same amount and paying a lot more for rent and not getting a whole lot more out of what we were, what our work was, being able to afford less space uh, than, than people were 41 years ago, being able to afford a lot less things or just amount, about the same amount of things, all told, than, than uh, people were two generations ago. And that is a horrible thing to do to people. We need to respect. We need respect for leisure to do that. We're, we've so convinced ourselves that it's right to put less privileged people in the, person, in the position where they've got to work and prove they're good people by working. So we need a basic income to give everyone le- leverage to command either greater leisure or greater consumption out of this increasing pool of, of uh consumption possibilities we have thanks to the growing economy. Yeah, it, it's funny. I, what you were saying brought up uh, something that I read in, in David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs, recently. It was actually at, at like one of the last paragraphs. He, he concluded his, his uh, study with calling for a basic income as a kind of safe word theory of social liberation, as he put it. But he, he made a comment that I thought was really interesting. He was talking about how a lot of people worry uh, what a basic income might do to the structure of the labor market and specifically the labor force participation rate, right? People worry people will stop working and et cetera. But his data that he found, found anywhere between 30 to 40% of respondents felt that the work they were doing is meaningless and what he calls technically a bullshit job. And that mm-hmm. if you imagine a society with basic income where people's worst fears are realized and you have people who are bad poets, they call it, right? People who spend their time no longer working in a factory or as as a car salesman, but instead writing poetry that nobody reads, nobody buys, nobody's interested in. Or you have people becoming crank scientists with all these theories that are totally incorrect and do not help anybody. Um, But he he says, you know, he cannot imagine that that would rise above 10 to 20%. And if his finding is already that you have 30 to 40% in bullshit uh, jobs, that the labor, the inefficiency of the labor cannot be worse off in that basic income, basic income scenario than it is today. And that's even discounting the idea that we can actually perform a value judgment on, on a quote, bad poet as being worse off for society than somebody who is working in an office job that makes them miserable, right? I'd rather live in a society where people can be terrible poets if they like, rather than working in an office job under fluorescent lights that makes them go nuts. Yeah. Um, I haven't read Bullshit Jobs. I need to. I, I, read, I read his other book, Debt the first five thousand years, which was great, but yeah, that is that is a really excellent example of just how 
bad this assumption is, is that as long as you're getting paid, you're doing something valuable. No, as long as you're getting paid, you're, you're satisfying the whims of somebody who has more resources than you do, who owns more property than you do. And often the things that they want you to do really are not that valuable for them or society as a whole. And we're all in this position where that's all we have to do. And I would think that with basically with a high and generous basic income, it would be a good thing for our economic efficiency and for life in general if a lot of these bullshit jobs disappear. Putting a pin in that, I think it'd be a good time to kind of transition into a little bit of the the groundwork basics, a few of um, the questions that come up very frequently in these kind of debates and uh, maybe starting specifically with the cost of basic income, because this is something that uh, you've written about and you actually mentioned it was one of your, one of your more popular um, pieces because people love to really dig into the cost. And what was so interesting about the, the paper you'd put out on it was the disparity you came to between the usual calculation people come up with for how much basic income costs and what you found is the actual or the real cost. So maybe you could kind of bring us up to speed a little on, on the cost accounting. Yeah, well, basic income, you're giving basic income to everyone in society. And so people will very naively and sometimes disingenuously uh, will just say, well, I'll just multiply the size of the basic income by the number of people who are going to get it and think that that is a meaningful cost figure. Mm -hmm. That's the gross cost. But the real cost figure is the net cost. The net cost is takes into effect that we're going to have to raise taxes to do this. You've got you've uh, you got to if you're going to increase spending by that much, you've got to have some new taxes. Otherwise, you'll have rampant inflation. So um, so you're going to have to tax a lot of this back. And when you tax people, you have to look at okay, they're receiving a basic income but they're paying a tax. So those two things cancel each other out. They mm -hmm. pay a tax in money. They receive a basic income in money. So what is effectively happening is you're going to their bank account and you're saying, you're putting a number on a ledger saying, here is a dollar in basic income and here comes a dollar in taxes. And you're right back where you started. And that is easily two thirds and, and, and very probably five, six or more of what basic income ends up doing is that it's mostly we're paying ourselves. And it's not just the people at the upper end who are paying themselves, but people in the middle, people who are net recipients will pay themselves. And even people with very low income will very often pay some portion of their own income themselves. So what we need to do to find out what basic income really costs is say, those who end up paying more, all told, how much more do they pay? Which is virtually the same as those who end up receiving more in, in basic income than they pay in new taxes. How much do they receive? The And those two are about the same. Uh, the difference is transaction costs, which if it's like Social Security will be about like a half a percent of the, gro uh, of the gross. So that's not going to be terribly expensive. You can almost ignore that. And when you look at in my when I when I look at that with some very simple calculations, I find that for the United States, the net cost of basic income is 2.95% of gross domestic product, which is only about 539 
billion dollars per year. That is less than a quarter of what we're spending on, on social spending today. And it's enough to eliminate official poverty. It's uh, official poverty is not the greatest measure, but at least we'll eliminate it. Now, that is really cheap. We're eliminating poverty through 2.95% of GDP. Now, this does not count the cost and benefits of mixing it in with a system. There's some additional cost of mixing in with a system is that if you did it the way we model, some people would have very high marginal tax rates, even if they're low tax rate is even if their overall tax burden is low, if their marginal tax rate is very high, that can cause problems here and there. Right. But, um, but so that, and fixing that is going to cost money. Any way you fix that means the people at the upper end are going to have to pay more in dollars. Um, so, but also, but it also, there's a benefit. You fix that. That means people in the middle and the low end are going to end up being better off. And so you get those marginal tax rates and that's going to, that will increase the cost, but you will decrease the cost because some parts of the, of the existing welfare system can be replaced. I don't think all of it can, right? Uh, but some people, some, some of it can be replaced. So we're looking at 539 billion, which is, want about a quarter, maybe a little more than a quarter of transfer payments right now. So if, uh, uh, I don't think you're going to be able to, you're you're not going to replace $539 billion worth of things, but you might be able to replace two or $300 billion of social spending per year with things like food stamps. Basic income is way better than current food stamps. And you could just say, um, basic income or social security will give you the highest of, of whichever one. Or basic income doesn't count unless uh, only unless it's more than your social security. Right. So that saves you a very large money, amount of money right there. So basic income, in some ways it'll cost more, in some ways it costs less. And I don't calculate these things. In the back of the envelope paper, I just count the cost of basic income in a vacuum is $539 billion a year. 2.95% of GDP. That's for a not very generous one that just barely gets people out of poverty. You want to move that up to a $20,000 a year basic income for adults and 10000 for children, which will eliminate, do much better than eliminating just official poverty. That will cost slightly less than 10% of GDP. I, I can't remember the dollar figure. I don't have it right in front of me, mm-hmm. but slightly less than 10% of GDP. Yeah. And it's and so the the number you came up with the 539 billion which yes uses yeah. simplified models but it does demonstrate kind of a ballpark idea contrast that against the usual cost estimate that you were mentioning people do if you multiply the population of the US by 12,000 which would be the annual basic income rate under kind of the most popular proposals you come up with a number that is north of 4 trillion dollars and then that's typically laughed at and that shuts down the discussion. Um, yeah. One thing I just to clarify to make sure I understand, it is true that in order to fund something like this, we would need to implement measures that would raise that much the north of four trillion. Is that correct? And then your cost accounting yeah. is once that gets distributed back out, we need to include that distribution canceling out. Um, 
but we do need to raise that much money. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, sure. We have to raise that money. Yeah, sure. We have to raise that money. Right. But it's really not hard to raise that money. Right. It's not hard to say on, on your income tax, say, you know, here's a higher income tax, but here's a basic income. Right. Um, and I, I think a, one good way to do it, which I haven't written about, would be to have your income account where every to, it, it would make filing your taxes much easier is that instead of you have a very simple you have to have a simplified tax system but instead of this difficult thing with with holdings and then with calculating what you really owe at the end of the year and getting a check for the difference or paying a check for the difference what you do is you have your income account and anybody that wants to give you income has to send it to this account you can do whatever you want. Once it's in your account, you can do what you want with it. Then out of that account, we take the taxes, but we add your basic income, whatever taxes you owe on income. Mm -hmm. So you do this and then you're getting your basic income every week or every day. You could even do it every second or every fraction of a second. You get a little tick on your basic income goes in there. Uh, you're getting this added to your account and then you're getting your taxes taken out of your account. So you never see the taxes. The taxes are always being offset by this basic income that you're getting. Right. And also, it's really important to look at the cost of basic income this way uh, because other things, we don't look at these costs. Um, when we have our housing tax deduction, that costs billions and billions and maybe even trillions of dollars in lost revenue. We never count that as a cost. Right. So we could just replace the housing deduction by basic income. And that means everybody that's getting the housing deduction will just get a, simple, a different kind of deduction. And it could be a big one. It could be $20,000. Yeah, right. Um, not everybody's paying that much in their house. Uh, a lot of people aren't. Um, another thing, the standard tax deduction. We could eliminate that. And, uh, that, and that could be replaced by the basic income. There's a lot of things like that that could be replaced by basic income. So, but but it would be taking away a tax deduction and giving people a tax credit, which is very much the same thing. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people, I think you've touched on this a little bit, but I want to ask a lot of people uh, would respond to this idea or the notion that we're going to raise above $4 trillion. And even then, if we don't count that the cost, but that's a lot of money, right? And yeah. there is a movement kind of uh, gaining a little bit of steam as far as I can tell about uh, whatever labels they use, universal basic services. But the basic idea is if we are able to raise that much money and pass measures and, and democratically decide we're going to implement these you know, tax systems to raise that much money, the, the concern is why not invest that money in directly into services like healthcare and childcare and education and, and these kinds of things. And you've mentioned a little bit the virtues about direct cash transfers as opposed to trying to um, predetermine the goods and services people should spend on. But how do, you, how do you respond to this idea that if we're able to raise that much money, why is it best to give money out than to give people the things that we all agree everyone should have? There are, there are several reasons. One is respect is that we think that we know what lesser privileged people need than we do. Right. But I don't think you'd like it if your boss, or say you're a stockholder in a company, so you don't even work, a stockholder, and your company says, well, instead of giving you dividends and profits uh, or wages and salaries, 
Um, I'm going to provide you housing and you're not going to have as much choice and you're going to have the housing that I think you need. And the percent of your budget spending on spent on housing is going to be by me. Right. I'm going to also, uh, I'll give you a, I will give you food uh, instead of, you know, uh, I will give you, in, instead of your whole salary is going to be in money, I'm going to give you some of your money, uh, some of your salary in food stamps. I'm like, well, you know, I, I can decide for myself. I know what my needs are. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what my needs are. I know, I know to buy food. I know to buy housing. And sometimes, depending on where I live or other things that are important to me and my family, I need to, might need to spend more on housing. And less on food, or more on food and less on housing. Right. Um, so you got to pay people enough to meet their basic needs. Now there are other services that we might be able to provide better than in cash. I'd I'd rather have a national health service than a basic income high enough that we could buy decent health care off of the off of the uh, private health care yeah, market right. because uh, you have enormous market failures in. In the healthcare market, and we end up, we'd end up paying twice as much as any country that has national healthcare, and having worse worse health co- outcomes if we did it that way. That I think we need a service for, not because I don't trust people, but because the because the aspects of the health market have these market failures for that, and the same is true for public education. That's interesting. Um, so that's almost a, a frame that we can say that basic income operates best in markets that are kind of functioning smoothly, whereas markets where where there are market failures, basic income might not be the best approach. Exactly. If there's a smooth running market, there is no reason to substitute service, government provided service for cash, unless you think you're better than people with less and you want to be paternalistic and supervise them. Right. Yeah, and it's um, that's one of the big things that's also mentioned as yeah. a virtue of basic income is the bureaucracy and infrastructure that would be necessary to provide services is much larger than just simply providing a cash transfer. And so one of the draws. And we're gonna yeah. Oh, go ahead. So we're gonna spend all this extra on all these big overhead costs with our UBS thing. We're gonna do that, and we're gonna spend all this extra on these overhead costs. Just because we don't respect people who have less than us. Right. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, are these services the same? Are they really going to give everybody a house? Uh, Are they really going to give everybody an adequate diet, wherever they happen to be, uh, even if they're across town? Uh, Are they really going to provide all the other incidentals that I might need in my house or my apartment? One day, are they really going to basic services going to do that or are they going to maybe build a high speed rail that will be used mostly by the upper class? Right. So they'll they'll spend it on a they'll spend it on an airport that will be used almost exclusively by the upper class. Yeah. Um, so yeah. these services often end up getting diverted. Yeah, and it seems that it seems that uh, the virtue of direct cash transfer versus services is that it builds in much more dynamism and adaptability into the small scale, each person's life, each person, like you're saying, is going to have nuances and details that simply cannot be predicted and are certainly not best managed by a centralized decision-making force. And so basic income kind of distributes, and like you're saying, it's it's an issue of respecting people to make the best decisions for what applies to them. Um, mm-hmm. But an, another question on that, 
on a similar front, uh, you've mentioned negative income tax, and you also mentioned how basic income functions similarly when you really dig into the kind of the the nuances of the taxing that would happen. So I wanted to ask: the more I'm thinking about it, the less clear the differences between a basic income and a negative income tax are to me. I understand you know, the the kind of bird's eye view differences, but it seems that in either situation. There's going to be a, a point along the income spectrum or the wealth spectrum where people above that point have their net taxes increased and people below have their um, net taxes and their, their net income increasing. Um, and in negative income tax, that's very explicit, right? You you agree on a point, let's say 30000 for simplicity. Anyone who earns below that gets taxed up to the level. Anyone who earns above it gets taxed down just to, to bring the bottom up. Whereas in basic income, there's still probably going to be a point, like you're saying, where anyone above that point on net, on aggregate, is going to be paying more than they did previously, and anyone below is uh, going to be paying less and receiving more. So what are the, the real differences between the two, and, and where, what pushes you to come out in favor of basic income versus a negative income tax? Well, basic income and negative income tax, within the movement, there's controversy about that. There are some people who think they're equivalent, and it doesn't make any difference. And those people usually tend to favor negative income Mm -hmm. tax. And there are other people who think they're very importantly different, and they tend to favor basic income. I am closer to the second camp. I I know people who actually think that basic uh, basic income supporters – who actually think that negative income tax is counterproductive. And I'm not going to get into their arguments, but there's there's several things. One is that negative, it's contained in the name, negative income tax. And that is that that that, uh, basic income is a negative tax just as much as anything else. And all negative taxes are income. But this one is inherently, the negative income tax is inherently tied to the negative income, uh, to the income tax. So for every basic, and and, and the equivalence then relies on assuming it is negative income tax finance, Mm -hmm. at least up to the break even level. It has to be income tax finance, which is five sixths of the program when you look at the uh, when you look at the gross cost and uh, five sixths of the financing of the gross cost will have to be income taxes to make them to make them equivalent the rest whether people above the break even point are paying additional income taxes that's that's another question now so negative income tax is only necessarily equivalent to to an income tax finance based income or at least five-sixths income tax finance-based income, whereas basic income could be financed by a lot of other taxes. Right. So you might want basic income so that you don't have to have these income taxes imposed on net recipients. It could be a VAT tax. It could be a land tax. It could be uh, a natural resource tax. It could be a rent tax. could be... Um, could be uh, a tax on pollution. could be taxes on... on global warming emissions, all kinds of things. So you might not want to do it that way. That I don't think is the biggest reason. Another reason that has to do with how it works is that basic income seems like 
it would be easier to administer. It seems like it because you're not paying people and taking back from them at the same time. And that sounds like it would be saving a lot of effort. But it actually, for it, it saved virtually no effort because it's really easy for the government to say, here's your 10,000 up and here's your 10,000 down. Right. No big deal. That doesn't save you very much, but you lose something that is hard for the government. In order for the government to give you the negative income tax that you're entitled to at this very moment, the day you lost your job, the day you had to leave your abusive husband, then the government needs to know how much money you're making at that point and whether you're filing as with a spouse or whether you're not filing with a spouse. So it creates these enormous collection problems. And the government has to figure out then how much money are you making for all your jobs? Well, what if you work three jobs? Is the government going to be able to figure out what's the total income of those three jobs and are you still a net recipient? And how much are you net recipient? So let's say that your husband's beating you up. And he's beating the kids up. So you run to a homeless shelter. And then you want to go out and, and, and you had to run. You, you, you need to go out and buy stuff yourself. Um, and you're getting it. And if you've got basic income, that's going into your account every day. Mm. And it's your account separate from your spouse. But if you've got negative income tax, the negative income tax authority doesn't know you just left your husband. And say your husband makes a huge income. So they think, you know, you call them up and, and you say, I need my negative income tax. And they'll say, well, it says here you filed jointly and you have an income of $200,000 a year. That, you don't get negative income tax. And you say, well, I had to leave my husband and I'm in a homeless shelter. And then the guy on the phone says, well, prove that to me. Right. Uh, here, fill out these forms to prove to me that you're eligible for basic income tax. Remember, this is penalty of perjury. So that is an important reason to have basic income because it is we give money to the wealthy and take it back from the wealthy, not because it's so great to give money to the wealthy, but because that makes it better for the people who need it most. Basic income is better for those who need it most. And then there's another reason is the solidarity reason is that they say benefits for the poor are almost invariably poor benefits. Because when it's a negative income tax, you can easily go to the wealthy people and, the, and anybody above the cutoff point and say, oh, that negative income tax, that's for those other people. You don't get that. They get that. You don't benefit from that. They do, even if you're benefiting with all the leverage it gives you with your employer. They get this. Even if you've gone on and off, they get this. So we'll cut that and lower your taxes. And you're like, okay, I can support this. I don't see myself going on this thing anytime soon. They cut the negative income tax, which I don't get. Then maybe they give me a maybe they give me a basic. They may uh, they give me an income tax cut or some other tax cut. Maybe they do. And if they don't, uh, they only took it away from those other people. But if it's a basic income. Then you're getting it and everybody else is getting it. And the person who's trying to attack it has to say, I'm going to take away your basic income and 
everybody else's basic income, and then I'm going to raise, then I'm going to lower your taxes, and your taxes are going to go down more than your basic income goes down. And you're going to say, well, uh, how do I know that? You say that. I know I'm losing my basic income. You're taking my basic income, and you say my taxes are going to go down even more? How long is that going to last before you raise the taxes back up and I'm just without a basic right. income? So it creates this much larger constituency for basic income. Yeah. And it also, people see that it benefits them from their lives. They see, oh, yeah, when I, you know, I, I was out of work for a while and that basic income was still coming in. You know, I wasn't even, hadn't even had time to apply for anything or I wasn't eligible for unemployment insurance. I got out of school or something. I had this basic income. That was good for me. You get more people exposed to it, people who wouldn't necessarily apply for the negative income mm. tax. And not only to say, even, you know, say with the, um, the negative income tax, the person would have to maybe have to fill out a form to show that their income is low, but also that this, that does, is, do we really need this person in this crisis that just lost their job or just became disabled or just had a just had a mental health crisis or just had to run away from an abusive spouse do we really want this person filling out a bunch of forms to say i need my negative income tax now or we just want the basic income to be right there? yeah i hear so i heard three kind of themes i want to pull them out cuz they're i hadn't thought of them they're really good responses so three reasons that that you just kind of went over for why we might prefer uh, a universal basic income to negative income tax. The first was that a universal basic income is more open to a diversity of funding sources. And given all the controversy about funding something like this, it seems uh, a virtue to be open to as many funding sources as possible rather than pinning the burden on income taxes specifically. Um, or pinning five sixths of it to negative right. to to tax that, the majority portion there. Uh, the second one, and this is something I really I really resonate with, is that a negative income tax, because of all the filing that would be required to monitor people's income from which to determine how much they are entitled to, would render the program more dependent upon a centralized structure. Um, it would have all kinds of externalities, like you mentioned, with people who might need things or would benefit greatly from immediate access, which they cannot have because they'd have to go through a filing process, which would be a serious pain in the ass. And then third was negative income tax seems to, if I can use a loaded phrase here, it seems to reinforce a kind of class consciousness, right? It it kind of implements this divide between people who receive the assistance and the people who don't. Um, whereas a basic income is a universal, unconditional, everybody is equitably sharing in this idea. Um, so the three of those together make a pretty strong case, in my opinion, for basic income with the caveat of kind of keeping in the discussion that the two are less different than we might assume at first. Um, that was that was pretty interesting for me. I hadn't really thought about them too, difficult, uh, too intensively. Um, you mean more different than you Right, right, right. Sorry. The, the difference is actually much larger than I thought in the case for a basic income yeah. as opposed to a, now, yeah. Now, I had this idea some years ago. It's one of those ideas I haven't had time to work on. This idea of, uh, of an income account um, to, for doing your taxes. Right. And if you did that, you could make, you could make the negative income tax and basic income 
much more equivalent. Especially with some uh, digital technology in there, you'd imagine it could really make that a seamless kind of accounting process. Right. It would be a lot more, it would be a lot more like, it would be a lot more like, like, like um, making the two things equivalent. Right. So you get some of the benefits of negative income tax that really literally all you're doing is adding here and then subtracting in the same place, you know, um, maybe at a slightly different time. Uh, but you are giving the basic income everybody and you're calculating it in the basic income way and you can count on it being there. Yeah. And maybe moving on from, so from the first area, the diversity of funding that can kind of come into play with the basic income. You've mentioned a, a couple things already, but it, it would be, it'd be nice to hear as from someone who spent so much time digging through this kind of the, the top few taxes or, or kind of strategies that make sense to you to pay for this kind of thing. That has not been my central area of expertise mm. um, is to where to get the taxes. Now, there's plenty of taxes out there to get um, and many ways to do it. My, my, feeling is, is, my feelings are, are, are several um, that, that it is about making a commitment. What we need is a bigger commitment to redistribution of income. Right now, we're spending about $2 trillion a year on transfer payments, and that needs to be more. Mm. That it's not about reorienting what we're already giving to people with less privilege. It is about a bigger commitment. But we need we need more taxes, and these taxes need to be drawn from people at the at the upper uh, at the upper half, and mostly from the one percent right. of our income. Now, figuring, and then it's just merely a question of strategy of what is the best strategy, and here. I think there's a, there's an old libertarian principle that goes back to Adam Smith that I think is a perfectly good one. I'm not a libertarian, but I uh, give credit where credit is due. So Adam Smith argues that he has really basically two principles of taxation, that it should be based on the ability to pay, which is seems obvious that those who can pay more do pay more. And the second one, it should be collected in the manner that makes it easiest for people to comply. Hmm. Um, and we do very much the opposite of that. We used to have uh, a reasonably progressive tax system, and we've given so many tax cuts to the upper wealthy that they're actually paying a smaller amount of their income than people in the middle or lower end. So it's not based on the ability to pay. And it's collected in the most difficult manner possible. And that actually, oh, now that now I get to this. There's this <laughs> non-basic income issue that I get to. And the reason that is, is because there's only one reason we collect taxes in this extremely difficult way. And that is because of corruption. Because we live in an extremely corrupt society where... It's so corrupt, we don't even think of it as corruption. We have these bribes that we call campaign contributions. Right. And these enormous bribes that people are given. So the, the lobbyists for the account, tax accountants, the people who prepare your taxes, are continually lobbying against 
any law to simplify taxes and for more and more laws to make it impossible for you to figure out your taxes themselves. Right. So uh, they're not collected on the ability to pay. Uh, and then you realize a lot of the other things we don't do that we should do um, are because of this corruption. We could get a lot of money for basic income by replacing the housing tax deduction with the basic income as a tax credit. And we don't do that because the housing construction industry spreads a lot of money around Washington and says, we want this. Um, we have people dying in gun deaths um, over and over again every day in the United States, not because we have a right to firearms, but because the lobby for the people who the gun manufacturers and gun sellers want to be able to sell them to criminals and people with mental health, dangerous people with mental health problems. Um, if we just had some simple reforms, people could still own their guns and, uh, and, and uh, the vast majority of us, and we take the guns out of the hands of people who can't handle them. Um, that's, and there's so much of this corruption that so I would like to see a move towards taxing uh, maybe another principle of taxation. He says the ability to pay and collect in the manner that makes it easiest for people to comply. Well, another thing is it also be, and I think this goes well with Adam Smith, is that they should be, the taxes should be in whatever way is most efficient. And there are a lot of taxes that are more efficient than the taxes we have that actually will improve the efficiency of the economy that we ought to be moving towards, such as we need to end all subsidies for air travel and automobile travel, end every single subsidy. Then tax fossil fuels and anything else that is polluted. So, I mean, just ending those subsidies would raise a huge amount of money that can cover your gross and net cost of basic income. Then um, things like Things like a land value tax. Yeah, this is coming out of Henry George, is, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, Henry George. I don't agree with everything he said, <laughs> yeah. but uh, the land value tax is a very good idea. It is a neutral tax. What we have now is real estate value taxes, which count the value of buildings and then give you an incentive not to build buildings, not to improve your land. Uh, because your taxes are going to go up. If you tax the land value only, which is the value of a resource that you didn't create, it was here before you, tax that value to the hilt, and then if then let people build whatever they want on it, and then they can collect the money from what they build on it, and that gives people much better incentives than our than our system now. It's also a tax that is that is easy to pay. Another way is to end government giveaways such as the Federal Reserve Board, which is something that exists primarily for the benefit of the banks that run it. The the people who sit on the Federal Reserve Board are overwhelmingly bankers, bankers who are are, uh, billionaires or or are more than centimillionaires, have more than $100 million. I, I know a guy who was uh, used to be on the Federal Reserve Bank. He used to be the head of Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, and and he's one of the few. He's only he's only a centimillionaire, million, but you know he's great to <laughs> buy. Um, and and the so the Federal Reserve Board is set up to 
create money by giving it at very low interest rates to the banks and lets them turn around and lend it at extremely high interest rates to everybody else and doesn't even tax them on the difference. So we're giving them the money. The, 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 every loan you get, every loan you get from a bank is financed by the government and it is, and the government is not even taxing the banks on all the money they make out of it. So if you, if you get rid of the Federal Reserve being a representative of banks and the Federal Reserve being a for-profit institution for the, for the profit of the government at the expense of the bankers, uh, that could get a lot of money or a nonprofit institution just designed to raise revenue for people, for, for the government, to manage, to functionally finance what the government needs to be financed. I should put it that way. That third way is probably the best way right. to say it. But do it that way. Do it that way and, and, and uh, stop all these giveaways to the bankers. That's trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the money's out there. There's a lot of good ways to get it, but it is about making that commitment. And that's what tied in my tirade about about corruption in with this issue of basic income in order to get this greater commitment to meeting people's needs we need to get this corruption out of our system right and that makes me feel like i've been working on the wrong issue all these years i started working on basic income because i thought poverty was the the worst problem in america and now I'm beginning to see that this corruption, this endemic corruption that's so corrupt that we don't even think of it as corruption. We, we can stare a bribe in the face and call it a campaign right. contribution. Right. Um, and, that, and, and really believe it. I don't think most of the people in Congress who spend 90% of their time raising money think of themselves as corrupt. That's how corrupt our system yeah. is. So we need to. So that I think is, is is in a sense a bigger problem than basic income because it, to some extent you have to solve this problem to get us the basic income. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe not. Maybe you don't. But it's just as big. But of course, I also realize now that our police courts and justice systems combined uh, mistreatment of of non-white peoples and our colonialism, our quasi-colonial militarism abroad, are also problems just as big as poverty. Right. So uh, there's a lot of big problems out there, but poverty remains one. <laughs> it, it's like, um, and it, it's it seems like, to be uh, one that we're starting to make some progress. Right. On. So, it's funny. Right. It's like uh, John Muir wrote that uh, you know if you pull on one thread hard enough, you find that it's hitched to everything else. You know, and you start to bring in this big mm-hmm. web. I want to briefly circle back to the land yeah. value tax because this is something that's been coming on my radar a little more, um, and it's really interesting. I've seen a really diverse set of people talking about it. And I want to make sure I understand correctly. At present, what we're doing is someone, let's say someone owns a plot of land on a street. They get taxed for the total mm-hmm. value of whatever they have on that plot of land. So if you build a store or whatnot, all the value you created gets included in the tax you're paying. Um, that is and correct. then what the, what the movement for a land value tax is, is arguing is that what we should be doing is having a tax and a much higher tax rate than we have now purely on the plot of land itself, disregarding whatever you build on it. So what, when you bought that plot of land yes. and you raise that high, because like you said, the land is not something that we are responsible for creating. It's, it's inherited collective wealth. And what that would do is by having a high tax rate there is it incentivizes people to build as much value as possible on that plot of land to create a disparity between the tax they're paying on the land and the value they've added. Is that like the general idea? Well, 
that well, that's one of many ideas uh, related to it. It not only uh, gives them uh, an incentive to put the most valuable thing there, but it also um, it also removes the incentive to just sit and wait on mm. it for speculative reasons. Right. You, you're like, well, I've got this plot of land. I could build something on it right now, but 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 maybe if I wait five years, then um, then this neighborhood is going to change, and I can build something bigger on it and make a killing as the land is more. And I don't even make something bigger. Just I'll right. you know I'll build whatever they happen to need at that time. Could be the same size, and I'll make more money. But that's leaving it sit. Mm-hmm. That's leaving it sit. And it's really affordable right now to leave real estate sit mm-hmm. in in a lot of countries. And there's a, there's a huge speculative value to doing it. There are people, especially in London, I think they're starting to do this in New York now, that they will park money in real estate. So they'll, they'll rent an entire block of, of apartments and won't even rent them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not worth the effort to rent them out. I am... I am parking my money here because I know I'm not going to lose anything. It's not going to go down and it might go up in the future. It's a really, really safe investment to just have this thing and leave it sit there. And it costs almost nothing because real estate taxes. Yeah. Now, people think, people get a bad idea about the land tax because they think that that means it's going to be more money paid by me, the homeowner. Uh, that I own my own home, and now with all the with all the money I've already paid for my home, now you want me to pay this huge land tax. My tax is going to go up. That's really horrible for me, the homeowner. A lot of us think of ourselves as homeowners, and that is exactly wrong. Because right now, in order to buy a home, you need to have this huge amount of money up front, which you do not have unless you're extremely wealthy, and you get that money from the bank. And for most of us, we don't really own the home. Our bank owns the home. Uh, eventually, toward the end of our life, we often briefly own our home. Uh, and and what this would do is means you wouldn't need that big chunk of money up front. You need some of it for the for the construction value of our house, but for the land value, you won't need anything. So you'll need much less from your bank to buy your house. And you'll instead pay continuously a little bit every year. Um, in, in with, but you don't need to pay interest. You'll be paying rental value instead of paying all that interest to the bank, which is very often more than what you're paying for the house. You're paying the interest to the bank. Um, you'll be paying your land tax instead right. of that. And you'll be paying it instead of some of the purchase price of your house. So you won't get to sell your house for this huge chunk when when you leave it but you also won't have to pay such a huge chunk for it when you uh when you buy it so it's actually very good for homeowners and very good for home ownership right yeah and two other domains that i i really uh think should be a part of this of this discussion you mentioned um we used to have a more progressive tax system than we do now and at least two measures that seem to make so much sense to me that I cannot comprehend why they are not already enacted other than you're, you're mentioning the frictional corruption within the system to kind of common sense reform. The first is uh, capital gains taxes, right? We, so we tax labor on an average of about 30%, but labor taxes you know, vary all the way up to, uh, I think 36 is the highest bracket of, of income tax, whereas capital gains range from 0% all the way up to 20% tops. 
Um, and people at the end of the, of the higher end of the income and wealth spectrum make a larger share of their income from capital gains, whereas people on the lower end make more from income. So effectively, we have lo- higher taxes on people who are engaged in wage labor and lower taxes on those who are engaged in earning rents off of capital ownership. And oh. I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, that's cor- that's corruption. It has to that's be right. I can't find a narrative that justifies that. That that, that is that um, people, the wealthiest people, get most of their money from capital gains, and so they spread a lot of these bribes we call campaign contributions around Washington, and they get lower taxes on them than everybody else. So the, I think one one way to do it, in addition to things like a land and rent tax, would be to to collapse capital gains and inheritance simply into income. Hmm. So wages, salaries, tips, capital gains, and uh, uh, capital gains and inheritance would all go into your income for the year. Now, you could have a higher deduction on uh, income or capital gains to keep uh, keep some things in mind. That That's fine. But this is income, the same as any other income, and it should be treated as such. Right. And that's the same with uh, the change we've seen in the marginal tax, rate, tax rates on income, right? In the, in the 1900s, we had the highest marginal tax, rate, tax rates as high as 90%, whereas recently they've collapsed down to only five brackets and 36 being, being the highest uh, percentage, yeah. which seems to fly in the face of what you were mentioning as Adam Smith's kind of two principles to each according to how much they can pay. It would make sense that you want to have a higher marginal tax rate the higher you get up the income scale. Um, exactly. But, but yeah, we, we've been moving in the opposite direction. Um, yeah. Maybe another kind of interesting place to go from here. Um, I mentioned it briefly in the beginning, but on, on another perspective of concern regarding basic income, and we, we, we addressed it a little bit when we talked about universal basic services, but um, some folks, I'm thinking of Douglas Rushkoff here and Mariana Mazzucato, whose book, The, the Value of Everything, I just read recently. I thought it was really good. Um, but th- they articulate a similar concern, and their concern is that basic income would essentially function as a palliative because it does not address strongly enough the underlying issue of wealth inequality. And the the kind of argument goes that income inequality is downstream of wealth inequality. And so if you have uh, basic income doled out, that essentially since the ownership of capital and the distribution of capital ownership would remain the same, which kind of creates the curvature of capital flows, that basic income is going to wind up flowing right back to the people who own all the capital. So I wondered how, what you think about that line of thought. Well, it's connected with, with the corruption issue is that um, people don't want their uh, people who own stock in a business don't want dividends. You think, you know, yeah. You give out a dividend, all the stock owners get free money. You know, why wouldn't you want that? You don't want that because your that dividends count as income rather than as capital right. gains. And it gets taxed at a higher rate. And so we've created this incentive to have much more speculation in the economy because you, what you want is your money to stay in the firm and then its stock price to go up because this firm has more money. But your firm doesn't always have the best thing to do with all that extra money. Uh, it might be better giving it to you and you invest it in something else. 
And so you get, and then it creates this speculation where there's a lot of speculation of which of these firms are going to go up becomes a big way that people make money in stocks, not holding them and taking their dividends. This is a byproduct of our inefficient system of taxing capital gains. No, wait, what was the other part of your question? Uh, the question was the, the wealth inequality would basically come just wind up flowing back to people who own the capital. Right. Um, and another thing we do with wealth, so capital gains are one of the important ways we tax wealth. So is inheritance. But another way would be a wealth right. tax. Now, Andrew Yang argues that it's too much trouble to collect, that, that it won't be worthwhile. I don't think so. Uh, I think a wealth tax could work. We'd have to do it differently than the places that tried it. It didn't work. But uh, Ed Wolf has done great work on this. Um, Ed Wolf at NYU. I think we could raise good money from a wealth tax. But if you have a combined system where you've got capital gains and inheritance are treated as income, then wealth is taxed at a low rate. And income doesn't have to be treated at that high. There are more things we include in income, the lower the rates have to be. So those things are included in income, but income rates are lower. Um, we get rid of the standard tax deduction and 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 the housing tax deduction, a bunch of other tax deductions in lieu of the one giant standard tax deduction we call the basic income, which is a tax credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do these things with negative income tax. Then we have then we have our. Uh, then we have uh, – so all of those things get collapsed into income, and a lot of those are hitting wealth much better than what we are, what is what is being taxed. Because these housing subsidies that we have in the form of, of uh, housing tax deduction is a way that wealthier people accumulate uh, more wealth, and poor people don't because they can't afford to buy. They have to rent. So this tax accumulation of wealth – and treat some of our ways of getting wealth in one streamlined way that can be more progressive, then you can go with wealth directly with a wealth tax, and then other things that our wealth is made out of, like uh, our banking system, actually taxing our banking system and stop making it for the benefit of all those private, super-rich people that make up the Federal Reserve Board. Um, Taxing land, taxing pollution, taxing any use of resources instead of giving away what the government does right now is it gives away the broadcast spectrum to companies and they sell it back to us. Now that's the same as if they gave away land to a bakery and they, uh, to a, to a parking lot. Uh, let's see, a parking lot, and they sell it back to us by giving cars. You pay for your parking lot, then people pay for parking. That's how your parking lot ought to work. Well, you ought to pay for the part of the broadcast spectrum you own. You pay the rent on that part of the broadcast spectrum, and then you make money by selling cellular service or radio service or satellite service or television or internet, or whatever it is that's going over your part of the broadcast spectrum, but you have should be paying the full rental value of that instead of getting that for free. And I've heard estimates that this could be as much as $300 billion wow. a year, just the rental value of the broadcast spectrum. Enormous amounts of money. Yeah. So, and that's just a government giveaway. Um, 
And it's it, it's equivalent of giving somebody free rent. Um, it's equivalent, you know. Uh, so so we do all of these things, and we don't need a very large income tax and a very large wealth tax or a very large capital gains inheritance tax, or, or uh, um, because we have this combined thing of these taking these little taxes where people where they're most efficient. And where they harm people the least. Right. And even, I mean, the idea of the wealth tax has really surged up recently. It began with Thomas Piketty's work. And then recently, uh, the two economists at Berkeley, whose names I will mispronounce, but it's, I think it's Gabriel Zuckman and Emmanuel Says, um, who are, I think, informing Elizabeth Warren's policy. She just released her Medicare for All plan that has a 6% wealth tax. But the the proposals have ranged, I've seen, from generally 1% to 2% wealth tax. And, and Warren's is the highest I've seen yet. But uh, the discourse is definitely rising around that. And I think it I think it would go a long way. And like you're saying, along with this other kind of dashboard of measures to try to yeah. rectify the underlying shape of the economy a little bit to to act on this concern that income is just going to flow back to where capital is owned. Um, and the kind of rent and ownership idea you're talking about with broadband uh, spectrum rights is definitely something that would, would contribute um, in this sense. There's another... Uh, another area that I think is interesting and where all this is kind of leading. Um, and this is, there's a quote from Bertrand Russell that I've seen you use uh, a number of times. And I think it kind of highlights the issue in the area that I think is so, so interesting. Um, so the quote that you use from Bertrand Russell is where he writes a certain small income sufficient for necessaries should be secured to all, whether they work or not. And a larger income should be given to those who are willing to engage in some work, which the community recognizes as useful. And what I think is going to be the area where we need to do the most work as, as a culture is this bit where he says, which the community recognizes as useful. Um, because a lot of the concerns about something like basic income coming out of the free rider problem, like the concern that people are just going to piggyback off the productive activity of others and do things that are unproductive, is I think it, it requires a shift in what we consider useful work, what we consider being a, a citizen which is almost kind of getting into the social contract of what is the buy-in that we are asking for people to be a part of society? Like, what, is it, what does it mean to be a member of society? Um, and I know you, you've also done some work on, on social contract theory and so on, but I wonder what you think about kind of the shift in thinking that is required when we look at people and how they spend their time and the choices they make and, and how we view that in light of being a member of society, what it means to to contribute useful work, especially in a time when the kind of traditional economic exchanges um, are increasingly pulling away from value, right? A lot of the traditional activity measured under GDP growth is actually a detriment to our well-being at this point. And so the question is, what does it mean to be a useful um, citizen as we move into the 21st century with this hypothetical implementation of basic income and time use kind of restructuring? This, I think, uh, takes back, I mean, this community issue I find to be very tied to the freedom issue. And there are a lot of people who are, who are otherwise progressive and very much, in, uh, uh, very much in favor of greater redistribution and so forth believe that it needs to be tied to work because their view of community is that community is a joint project that we all work on together and that we all benefit from. And therefore, we all owe this labor to 
and we all need to do our bit to contribute to that. Now, that sounds like a fairly pleasant communal view that about people caring about each other, but it really doesn't amount to that. Um, that I think to really build community, we need to take this Bertrand Russell look at community, is because that sort of community begins with the pri- and the, the, the privileged have already taken over control of the resources. Uh, and the privileged are saying to everybody else, to join our community, we're going to deny you any access to these resources on your own. First, you work for us. The first thing is the less privileged do work for everyone else, and that proves you're a part of the community. Then you can share with the community. But of course, you're not just sharing the community's benefits. You're also sharing the benefits of the resources that were here before we got here. We're not giving you any opportunity to do that yourself. So it is a captive community. So it creates, you know, uh, uh, creates a decision-making progress that favors the privileged, and it creates uh, a property ownership that 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 uh, that favors the privileged. Uh, if you're not for some universal program like basic income, you're using homelessness as a threat to get people to do what you want them to do. Now, um, I've never seen a democracy that worked perfectly and didn't didn't reward people with privileges on top. So to have a decision-making progress that really reflects what the most out-group person wants and what is good for them and it's not, doesn't, doesn't, at all exhibit the status quo bias and the self-serving bias of the more wealthy is really difficult. I don't think you can do it. And to create a labor system that really resor- that somehow rewards what people deserves and doesn't reward the benefit of privilege and luck sufficiently that you feel like our system of labor is so incredibly fair that I can f- I can hog all the resources and threaten everyone with homelessness mm. if they don't participate. That I believe is 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 a is a very bad look at our system. What we need instead is a basic income society where we say we want to build a community. And we're going to start by showing you how much we want to build a community. So we're going to respect you that this community might not be good enough for you. Maybe it's it's not worth your effort. It hasn't. Cons- Maybe this community hasn't sufficiently considered your needs that you des- you should contribute to it. So what we want to do with our community and our joint work project that we're trying to do work that the community recognizes useful and all contributed to it, we're going to let you sit out unless unless you tell us that it's worthwhile. We're going to respect that you need enough resources to sit out if this big communal project turns out to be oppressive to you because we are either we, we either don't understand your needs or we're a little bit self-serving bias that we don't really want to serve your needs as much as constantly was consciously we might say we do. So we're going to to discipline ourselves by saying we're not going to demand your labor, we're going to ask for your labor, we're going to reward your labor. We'll give you good wages, good pay, good working conditions, good respect to get you to join this community. But if you don't want to join in the sense that you'll live here, but you'll sit out of any active contribution, Mm. we will respect that. We will respect that. Which one is really a better community? 
Which one fosters a sense of unselfishness? Yeah. Certainly, it is the second community, the one with the basic income. That's, and that's right. There's been a, an interesting conversation kind of sparking up lately around progress. Um, there was a, an essay published in The Atlantic a few weeks ago by two, uh, an economist and then a, a Silicon Valley guy. It was Tyler Cowen and I think it was Patrick Collison. But the, the essay said that we should establish explicit progress studies department in universities. And the idea is that progress itself is a phenomenon that's understudied. And what that led to me, I was reading it, and I found that the kind of definition of progress was a little bit narrow. And it's got me really thinking about what it means uh, for us to make progress as a society, especially taking the longer view. And one way that I think about it in relation to basic income is there's this call of, of decoupling livelihood from work, right? Which is very much kind of back to the beginning. We were talking about time distribution and your time spent in labor or in leisure and how the survival imperative might kind of coerce us in one direction or another. But I think about this idea of working a basic income into the design of the system as, as a genuine move of progress in that we're, we're tell, like you're saying, we're telling people that we are now able to afford everybody a basic livelihood, irrespective of anything else, that the buy-in to society is not uh, kind of complemented by the threat of homelessness and starvation, that the buy-in, like you're saying, is a desire to voluntarily participate. But even if you choose not to, that an actual genuine feature of progress is that somebody who chooses not to participate for whatever reason is still going to be afforded the basic needs they need to survive. And to me, that is such an unprecedented step forward. I've been struggling to think of what is progress irrespective of a kind of rational scientific paradigm and and the kind of colonial economic growth discourse. But this, this idea of a basic income to me is a legitimate step in that direction because it decouples livelihood from work. And it's, and it's something that situates this whole conversation in a very kind of present sense in with like the technological capacity of the 21st century. This might not be something that has ever been possible before to, to actually afford people what they need in order to survive irrespective of what they do on a day-to-day basis. Like, and, and to me, that's where in the beginning I was asking about the difference between are we trying to get back to some kind of freedom we might have had in pre-modern society or is this something new to me, the discourse around progress kind of shows that this is something new that we can provide this. Well, it, in, in one sense, in one sense, it's the one kind of freedom, and in another sense, it's the other kind of freedom. It's a return to old freedom in the sense that you're freed from taking orders. Mm-hmm. This is well documented that in the, uh, in the loosest groupings of society the, with this, with the, uh, with a smallest scale economy that appear to be archaeologically most similar to how people have lived for the 100,000 years, uh, 200,000 years that humans have been on this planet, is that you will find people never take orders. No one has to take an order from anyone else because they, they hunt when they want, they gather when they want, they fish when they want, and so forth. Farmers might, depending on the farmer situation, they might be similar as well. They might never have to take orders. So in that sense, basic income is a restoration of a freedom that has existed for a very long time. However, um, however, in the sense that most concerns you, that is, it's a freedom from toil. 
So at least to free them from most kinds of toil, maybe right. not from housework and shopping and, and things like that and getting to where you want to be. Um, but it is freedom from most forms of toil that you can take if you choose. And that is a different and new one. I base my argument not on the second one that you're talking about, right. but on the first one, on this idea of freedom from taking orders. Because freedom from toil, it takes to- toil to create it takes toil to create freedom from toil. Uh, you know, until we have robots that can do absolutely all the toil in the world, right? Then somebody has to work in order for you to be free from toil. Now, I don't think that's there's anything wrong with that. We could say. Um, Let's say we're we're living on an island, and uh, we need one person. We need somebody to dig a well. We could all dig a well together, just share the effort, um, or we could have one person dig the well and reward them with greater ownership of land than everybody else gets. Now, now it might be better for everybody that this one person does all the work and gets a larger share of land than it would be if we all shared the work. It could be better for everybody. So there's nothing wrong with society where some toil and some don't, as long as the toil, people choose it gradually. I think there's, there is something, there's nothing wrong with one where, 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 one where everybody toils if they all are choosing to do so and not being forced to follow somebody's orders. Um, now, so I'm, so I'm interested in the kind of thing you, you're talking about, but I haven't really based any of my mm-hmm. arguments about it. Uh, on it because it does it's not a freedom that we can all share at the same time it is one we can all joy more of we can all share of it through parts of our lives uh, but also another thing that you stressed is like i'm, I'm sorry i wanted to make sure you stressed yeah. it, that didn't come up so much in, in what you said is that we're not forcing people to contribute but what i want to stress is that we're also not just asking them to contribute right. out of their good graces we're not just saying everybody gets the same income, and then if you want to work, go ahead and work, you know, and, and that'll be your nice contribution. We'll count on you to want to make a contribution to do that. Um, that, I think, is a system that probably won't work. That what I'm saying is that everybody gets this minimum, and then we reward them for doing things that the community right. finds useful. So you're always going to get this basic minimum, but... But we will discipline our this giving you this minimum is part of our disciplining ourselves to not take advantage of you. If we create a situation where you don't have a minimum, it becomes very easy for us, the mm. privilege, to take advantage of you. Um, so we make sure everyone has this basic min- minimum in part to discipline us that then when we say we're sharing with you, when you contribute, we're sharing generously with you. Well, that's dang on going to be true because they're not going to take the work if, if you don't do it. So we need to rely not just on people's good graces, but we need to rely on our ability to give people good rewards for participating in our system of production or whatever work. Yeah. And I like I like that framing because what I'm not trying to wipe out of the discussion here is the fact that we respond to incentives and the higher scale you get up to and look at, you know, larger and larger, larger communities, uh, the more direct you can almost see human behavior in response to incentives. And maybe a way to think about basic income is kind of correcting for the market failure that is so easy to exploit when 
uh, a, a heavy degree of poverty is on the table. But what it's not doing is erasing the incentive structure. Right. It, it, essentially, it essentially brings in a higher degree of justice into that market and from then lets the market operate. Like you're saying, most people are not going to be happy to simply receive that whatever the basic minimum is and do nothing else. Most people are going to continue um, to want some more income, which gets into the whole relative versus absolute needs, right? People are going to have these, these wants that are larger than their needs and people are free to do so if that's something they're driven to, to reach and acquire. Um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely yeah. right that it's not just kind of appealing to people's good graces to, con to continue contributing to society. The incentive structure will still be there. We're actually making it a more just incentive structure by setting that, that bottom line. And yeah. yeah. And, and so maybe to get in from there, another area that, that your book was about that was really interesting and that I've been finding more and more recently as I kind of explore the fringes of, of, uh, more radical economics is about private property. Um, private property seems to me as kind of the leverage point in the system that can, that can drive change. This really interesting kind of frontier that people like me at my age, you know, been born into a world that has has had the same private property regime and I've, I've never experienced something different. And there's very seldom been discussion about how flexible the private property structure is. Um, but you had a, a quote that I wanted to draw from one of your papers that I think sets a good framework for how to think about this. So you wrote that when we take the view that there is no natural makeup of capitalism and the structure of the property rights regime is subject to democratic debate, the amount of tools at our disposal to maintain economic equality increases enormously. For example, in most places, land rights, mineral rights, water rights, broadcast spectrum rights, and a host of other rights were privatized years ago for little or no charge with little or no democratic debate. Um, and so this is essentially, this is referring to the commons, uh, commons being kind of publicly held wealth that everybody yes. has non-exclusionary access to. So I wonder if you, if you could give a little bit uh, of a look at, at the structure of property rights and how flexible they they actually are, especially to someone like me who this this idea is new that um, ownership and access can actually, they, they do not mean the same thing. You can still have access without ownership and that the degree or the relationship between private property and ownership and kind of the public wealth and commons, how these things can actually be tinkered with a little bit. Yeah. Um, first of all, we've got to realize that there is... There is not just one form of property, uh, pro property where one person owns it and owns it forever. They can, they can decide who gets it when they die and they can give it to a foundation so that they're deciding what happens to it generations after they die and that they control every aspect of that piece of property like a despot. Um, that is not how the only way property works. And as a matter of fact, that institution has been forced on most of the world's people for uh, over the course of the last four or five centuries. It's gradually been been spread through government force, um, and that's which is a funny thing about libertarians saying they're they're against government, where they wanna they want to um, strengthen this institution of private property ownership that government forced on the whole world. Right. So the uh, another, another form that we're fairly familiar with is public property, where everybody jointly owns it and it has some special use. So, um, so a school is public property. 
um, say, an elementary school. But um, you can only go to that elementary school uh, if you're uh, a teacher or a student or a parent uh, or a guest at designated times. It's not for anyone to use it. That's your... That's public property. We have lots of good public property that we're all excluded from for, for good reasons. You know, there's a, there's a reason why uh, I can't enter uh, my senator's office at any moment I want. Uh, maybe he's meeting with somebody else or she's meeting with somebody else. So the, uh, that's public property. But there's another form of pro- property called common property which you realize uh, um, the truer forms of common property that we have today are parks and sidewalks. Roads are not quite there because roads, very often, you cannot use them if you don't have a car. But a sidewalk and a park is for anyone who lives near enough by to get there can use. And no one can make it their property but we have this non-exclusionary access to it. And the word for that is a commons. This used to be a very common term. And a few hundred years ago, most of the land of the world was dominated by commons, whether it was farmland or whether it was, uh, whether it was just woods and things used for hunting and fishing and, far- and things like that. Um, it was usually a commons. People have this idea that farmers created that farmers created property rights, and that's simply not true. Most farmers, uh, most peasant farmers, shared land, and they didn't necessarily care about getting the same land next growing season as they got last growing season. What they cared about is me, as being a member of this community, get to use it every growing season. So I might have the right to grow stuff on this lot this summer. And I might then have the right to uh, graze my livestock on all the lots throughout the winter. And I might then have the right to this very same plot next year, and I might not. And I might have maybe only I can pick gleanings off of this lot, that is, things left over after the harvest. Maybe only I can do that, or maybe everybody can do that, or maybe... A limited number of people from the group can do that. These are more complex overlapping rights. And these were the common rights that people tended to set up around the world. My new book that Grant McCall and I are working on now, it's a sequel to Prehistoric Myths and Modern Political Philosophy, and we're calling it The Prehistory of Private Property, shows how this was the the most common institution for much longer before governments aggressively created the private property rights system in order to benefit privileged people in their society. Um, And when they took it away, they very much took away the freedom of the peasants. Some peasants were serfs, but others were were very free that they could work the land as they chose, and they might have to pay a tax to the Lord, but they didn't didn't spend most of their time following the Lord's orders. And lords used to complain about it because the peasants wouldn't take their jobs. They'd say, I want peasants to do this work for me. I'm offering this money and they won't take it. So I want to take away their access to the commons to give me control over them. And that's how we got the wage labor system and with a private property system. The private property system was created in part to give us wage labor and to give us to make the commoners 
unable to use the commons for themselves in order to get the commoners to be wage laborers, to have no other choice to be wage laborers. So I see taxation and basic income as a way to restore some of this independence that peasants had. And when this was being taken away, the peasants knew it and the and they talked about it and the owners who were taking it away, they knew it too. And they made arguments about how, why taking away independence from the poor was such a good thing because they needed that discipline. Um, now, basic income restores this independence and it also compensates the ordinary and the impoverished people for the fact that wealthy people grabbed all the resources. So it's both compensation and a restoration of your independence. And it is another way to think about property. If the government is taxing the land value of your property, you really don't, your property rights aren't as strong. You, the owner, your property rights aren't as strong. But the individual right, the right of an individual to have a share in that, uh, that gives every individual a share. When, you, when you're taxing that land value and giving it that, that gives everyone a share in those resources. And they can buy whatever kind of access they want to resources. If they want rented access, they can buy that. They can buy some sort of common access into, uh, into some sort of a land collective, or they can use it uh, they, they can put it towards actually buying something in the, in the normal way. Um, they'd have to pay their taxes on it, but they buy it in the normal way. So, the, uh, so this idea of a, of a tax-financed basic income really is a, 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 better, a better and more just and, uh, way of creating property rights and one that better reflects equality before the law it treats everybody as equal, not just the privileged getting treated more. Equality before the law and respects the freedom of everybody, every individual, respects every individual's independence. So, yeah, I think it's a much better way to look at property. Yeah. Building off of that, kind of the, the malleability of property rights and the structure between them, there's something I just encountered recently uh, called the Lauderdale Paradox. And I got this from the work of uh, Jason Hickel an anthropologist at the London School of Economics. Oh, I know him. Yeah. Uh, he, you know he's a basic income supporter? I, I figured. I've been reading his book, and I, I haven't gotten to that part yet, but I'm sure he is from what I've gathered so far. Um, and, 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 you know, he also has a long pedigree in basic income support because, you know, he's the grandson of a former Alaska governor who supported the, the, uh, the Alaska dividend. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... I, I, so I was reading one of his papers, and in it, he talks about this paradox, and it was coined in 1804 by a guy named James Maitland, who was the eighth Earl of Lauderdale. And this guy publishes a book with essentially the hypothesis that there is an inverse relationship between private riches and public wealth, that as one goes up, the other goes down. Um, and this has much to do with, with you've mentioned the idea of enclosure, that uh, kind of public goods are seized by private ownership and then sold back uh, to people under the, the guise of, of mm -hmm. private wealth. And so Hickel comments, he wrote that this is done not only in order to acquire free value from the commons, but also in order to create an artificial scarcity that generates pressures for competitive productivity. 
So this idea that the private riches are drawing from the public wealth that also creates these incentive structures that, um, for competition and so on. Um, and he goes on, and this I thought was really interesting. I'd wonder, I'd love to get your comment on this. He wrote that the only way to resolve the Lauderdale paradox is to reverse it, to organize the economy around generating an abundance of public wealth, even if doing so comes at the expense of private riches. This would liberate humans from the pressures generated by artificial scarcity, thus neutralizing the juggernaut and releasing the living world from its grip. But specifically, this idea that private wealth and public wealth are in an inverse relationship. Is that something that makes sense to you? Yes. As a matter of fact, it's funny that it's called the Lauderdale paradox because I've known this for decades as uh, something much more recent. Uh, James Kenneth Galbraith's The Affluent Society, mm -hmm. uh, that we have private wealth and public squalor. We are so affluent, but we keep everything so private that we create this public squalor that ends up being worse for all of us in a lot of significant, significant ways. Right. Um, and, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I looked for my copy of, uh, the affluent society. And I found that Lauderdale was cited in there, but, um, in, in the mid to late 20th century, people knew, associated that with Galbraith rather than, rather than with, uh, Lauderdale. Right. Uh, and, but now, of course, the the solution you read for was, uh, that was Hickel you were reading, or that was Lauderdale that was Hickel. Himself. Okay, yeah, the the solution that he's talking about is really very similar to the solution that I'm going to put forth in my next book. I'm I'm so far behind on what I'm trying to write <laughs> at the moment. I'm finishing up a book called The Prehistory of Private Property, which I talked about earlier. Right. And then I have to do a quickie short book for, uh, for MIT Press called um, uh, Basic Income Essential Knowledge. And then after that, I want to get into a, a book called uh, Just, Justice as the Pursuit of Accord. Mm. Now, I defined justice as the pursuit of accord in my earlier book, Freedom as the Power to Say No. Right. That book... It introduces, it mentions justice as per, the pursuit of accord, and it mentions that this book is only focusing on the on the theory of freedom in that theory of justice, and the rest would come later. Well, here it is; it's seven years later, and uh, that book is not out yet. But what I'm talking about is very similar to what Jason Hickel is talking about. I have an article uh, called "People's Endowment." Mm -hmm. If you look up that article, you'll see a very similar idea that the government should be privatizing things only if the purchase price that they should distribute back to everyone justifies it. That should be our uh, category. That should be our criteria for justification. And and actually, with a much wider one, is that they need to maximize the total value of the people's endowment. So, looking at the people's wealth, not just their income. So, is is our environment and our stock of assets that the people share and that their descendants will share, is this growing over time? Are there being a good steward to it? And to do this, you can't just privatize something to somebody who says, oh yeah, if you privatize this for me, give me all this free giveaways and I'll, I'll uh, give a lot of people jobs. You right. know? Um, no, you give us money. The jobs are a side effect. Uh, I will, you, you give us money. Uh, and this is also a different way of looking at citizens. 
I really hate the idea of looking at citizens as taxpayers, which implies that the more taxes you pay, the more right you have to say what government does with its money, which is really very much the opposite, is that we should look at ourselves as owners of the government. That this enti- that our role in the government not comes not from comes not from being a taxpayer, but from being an owner of the taxing authority. What being a taxpayer gets for you is the right to hold your property. You don't want to pay taxes, don't hold any property, you won't you won't pay any taxes. Right. That's what taxes right. get you. Taxes are the purchase price of property. They're more important than the purchase price of getting property from somebody else. Mm, yeah. Actually, on the on the subject of of Hickel's work, there was a I just uh, finished the end of his book, uh, The Divide, very much about global inequality and so on. And he has been very strongly arguing for degrowth, right? In the in the face of growth, he doesn't believe that we can continue the paradigm of economic growth and also live as we have, you know, in ecological limits. And right. I had a thought about basic income in regards to that. And I, I wonder if if you've thought about this approach before. That basically the the proposition of degrowth is such that we need to decrease our absolute levels of consumption and production, right? And it's a tricky thing to think about how to do, you know, and we can tinker with incentives to lead to things. But I thought about basic income as being a natural way to actually incentivize that degrowth because in a, in a hypothetical implementation of basic income, I do think that we could expect reasonably um, that certain functions that are currently measured under economic productivity under growth would decrease. That people might engage a little bit less in um, these kind of blind growth uh, market transactions. And it, so in a way, you can kind of see basic income as a natural path towards incentivizing a little bit of degrowth that might be healthy. You can imagine certain industries and, and areas that uh, people might engage with less with that kind of security. Is that is that a connection that that makes any sense to you, the idea of basic income and degrowth? Or are you kind of hesitant about the degrowth hypothesis? Well, um, first of all, um, in one sense, we definitely need degrowth. We need degrowth in our use of resources. The amount of resources we take from the earth have to be exactly equal to what goes back. Right. Or we'll kill the environment we live on. Um, And a lot has to, and we're really overdue. We've been taking so much more, just using up this planet. We are killing the environment that we live on. So we have to use less resources. Now, it's an empirical question whether using less resources means reducing total levels of consumption. Right. Uh, certainly some things we're going to consume less of. Uh, to do it, we're, we're probably going to have to consume less jet fuel. But then again, if you can fly your plane with something else, you know, maybe you'll actually find that it's that uh, you can consume more. Right. You know, if you uh, I, this isn't on the cards now, but say you could perfect solar air travel. Well, you'd be using fewer resources. You could then, if you had solar air travel, you could have fewer resource uses and you could have more air travel. So I'm not convinced that we need degrowth of consumption. Well, we'll see. Well, well, definitely, we've got to do the degrowth of resource depletion. And if that means degrowth in consumption, then, then yes, we do. I think connecting that with basic income... Uh, as presuming we need degrowth in both senses, 
basic income can cushion the blow for all the people whose jobs aren't is in much aren't in as much demand because we're not producing as much stuff. It cushions the blow, but whether it actually also in, encourages degrowth, I don't know. Um, I think the best way to encourage degrowth of resource consumption is to tax resources right. and wealth. Use the incentives. Um, you tax the use of resources and, and you discourage its use. And you keep raising the taxes on it till you find out how high do I need to raise these taxes to really discourage its use. But another thing you do is you tax, you get, you use our, our abundant, government's abundant level of uh, 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 toolkit of things to do to tax the wealthy. You tax the wealthy, they're the ones who are using up most of our resources. You tax the wealthy and create less inequality, then you get fewer resource uses, uh, less resource use. Now, the extent to which basic income adds to that, I don't know. But it certainly cushions the blow and we need basic income anyway. And it certainly gives you a just thing to do with all this money that you're taxing people. Right. That you're taxing the wealthy for. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about, there's uh, a writer who passed away recently who I I know you knew pretty well, um, Eric Olinwright, who was a big economist uh, sociologist and and very big in the kind of space of imagining how to move from where we are into a into a different kind of model. Um, his most recent essay I read, I think it was called "How to Be an Anti Capitalist Today," um, but it, it was a really so it was the first thing I've read of his, and it was it was so remarkable. It was a really sober kind of analysis of, of structurally how to move mm-hmm. from A to B. Um, and I saw that you published a, a bit of a, a kind of memorial when he passed earlier this year. Um, you shared a page, some of his works and things, but one of the, one of the items on that page you wrote up that was so surprising to me was you shared a journal entry of his that he had written after being told he had about three weeks left to live. He had been diagnosed with leukemia and he, he wrote a journal that he titled, I think it was strange state of existence. And mm-hmm. it was, I mean, it, it was flooring. It was really I don't, it, it was exactly what I would hope is kind of the sentiment that underlies so much economic work um, and so much of the theory. So what, what I, I want to read a little bit of it, not a lot, but he, he wrote that I am stardust that randomly ended up in this marvelous corner of the Milky Way where some stardust ended up in conditions where it became complexly organized in a way we term alive. And then even more complexly, conscious stardust that is fully aware that it is conscious Stardust, inanimate products of exploding supernova, organized in such a complex way that it is conscious of its own aliveness, the greatest privilege in the whole immense universe. And it may only be for a limited time. This complex organization ends and the stardust that is me will dissipate back to the more ordinary state of matter. And what I what I loved about that the most was kind of getting a peek at the sentiments and motivations that underlie people who have given their lives to doing economic theory and specifically kind of being reminded as, as to how deep the roots can go from why somebody is arguing for what they're arguing for. And it's not that, you know, anybody who has a kind of deep economic theory is going to have the same ideology. Ideology is going to change. But there's been this kind of uh, cutting off at the knees of economic theory, right? Trying to wash out the moral philosophy behind it um, as it's grown more into a science, more into a, a rational quantitative discipline. And 
that reading that really reminded me how deeply it could go. And it, it's a good way. It's a way I like to think of, of philosophy on the whole is kind of grounding the structures and our, our ways of living from this place of, of wonder, of generosity, of appreciation for simply where we are. And I, I wanted to ask you about your interactions with him and and this idea of kind of larger philosophies underlying economic theory, because it even feels coming from you that, you know, you're very passionate about justice. That's where that's where you came through this and freedom. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about this idea of the connection between philosophies underlying economic theory and, and also your interactions with Eric, if, if any. Well, um, I actually don't I don't know him all that well. He was at Wisconsin. I was elsewhere. He wrote on a large number of topics, and he brought a lot of his endorsement of basic income, brought a lot of attention to it, but he he did not take it upon his job to be one of the person who wrote the most stuff about basic income. He wrote about some underlying issues. So I was in a different place than he was and, uh, and working on different things. So I only had a little bit of interaction with him. But you know, I respected him greatly because his, uh, I mean, his his work on basic income and other topics was fantastic. The right. the economic issues underlie so much of what we do. I think largely because of this punishing way we do it. Is that the vast majority of us, everybody except for the independently wealthy, uh are in this position where we've got to get a job or, you know, or, or our parents have to get a job or we have to get a job. Somebody in our family has to get a job or we're out on the street. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us never get very close to that being out on the street, but that threat is always under us. It's under the vast majority of us until we're too old to work. If you're retired and you can retire and fewer and fewer of us are able to retire at a level that keeps us out of poverty. But for most of our lives, our family is under this threat of poverty. And that keeps our economy churning in ways that really aren't very efficient or necessary or good. And they're certainly bad for our environment. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as we move towards kind of the closing arc of we've gone through a lot of things, but I do want to ask about a couple kind of the pragmatic next steps, right? Where do we go from here? And obviously, you've mentioned you already have an overflowing stack of books to write and um, and things to do. And articles. And articles, right. And and I'm sure you'll get plenty of podcast requests and all kinds of things. Um, But there's two proposals I've seen that are interesting to me. And I don't know if if they're steps forward or backward. I'd like to see what you think. And and they share in the same spirit. So one is coming out of uh, Philippe Van Parijs' book, uh, Basic Income. He concludes the book by saying that what makes the most sense to him in terms of political and economic feasibility moving forward? How can we actually get uh, momentum and traction and get this thing moving um, into law would be to start with a partial basic income. So starting on a small scale, which would allow A, to kind of test out the infrastructure um, to see how to set it up. Uh, B, would kind of mitigate the initial shock value of costs, or maybe we can get deeper into net costs and that would already happen. But uh, using partial basic income as a way to kind of inch our way forward. Um, and this is the same idea. The second one is is about a wealth tax. Thomas Piketty recently did a, a TED talk where he kind of 
you know, updated. What does he think about his book, Capital in the 21st Century Now? And he actually concluded his talk with the same same notion that he his work builds towards wealth taxes, but he said we could start by implementing a micro wealth tax, a very small, like 0.01%, primarily to set up the infrastructure and, and test that out. Also, it would allow us to gather data and statistics and use this data and use feedback loops to kind of real-time micro-adjust our way as we scale up towards whatever the preferable tax level may be. So I wanted to ask yeah. about that idea of kind of incrementally starting so we can use feedback loops and data to micro-adjust course, or do you feel that it's something we should kind of go right in with the full the full amount? Um, well, I'm not a big political strategy guy. That's uh, I consider myself a follower on on activism and and political strategy. Uh, if people want to treat me as a leader in the theory of how it works and how to examine it and why to do it, that's very kind of them. Um, that is the work that I do, but I don't do a lot of direct work on what, how, how do we create a strategy that's going to get this implemented? Mm. I think it is politically feasible to all at once introduce, well, it's at least economically feasible to all at once introduce, introduce a basic income at least the poverty level. Now, for reasons that we haven't discussed in this podcast, I support actually the highest sustainable basic income. Well, we can't instantly know what the highest sustainable basic income right. is. So I would, uh, so even for just economic, not even political reasons, we should start at the poverty level and then ratchet it up and see see if we have some any sustainability uh, sustainability issues issues as we increase. Right. Um, so that much, I would say there. Now, uh, now, but I should say also that I'm, although I don't consider myself an expert in the politics of basic income, I do have opinions. I do have some opinions, and I think there are some strategies that work better th than others. If you're going to do incrementalism and start from a low level, it is important, it is extremely important, to view that as a step, not hide, and as a matter of fact, to emphasize that this isn't what you really want. This is a step towards mm -hmm. it. That this is a part of that greater basic income goal, and it's a step in right. that direction. That is important for a bunch of reasons. One reason that's important is not to create divisions among basic income supporters. Oh, you're for that really low basic <laughs> But uh, yeah, I can't. I can't work with you. Right. That's um, you know that's 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 a bad one. So that you don't want to do. And but there are other reasons, including that things that are small tend to be tend to be gimmicky. So that you have this all this hoopla for a program that is really hardly anything and is therefore easy to cut. There was an effort to make the child tax credit deductible, make it a refundable child tax credit so the poor as well as, as the middle class could benefit from it. Doing it, but, right. and what they ended up doing was instead of, to go incremental on it was 
instead of making the entire child tax credit a refundable tax credit, they created the additional tax credit. So they have this really small tax credit that would be refundable. And that divides, it further complicates our, uh, it divides the two deductions, it further complicates our already tax system, and it co complicates it in a way with the poorest people who are least able to get somebody else to do their taxes for them. It complicates it, and then it creates this program that doesn't do very much for people, because it's this really small, tiny portion of the child tax credit. Um, so it's gimmicky, and the Gimmicky programs are easily attacked, such as in Britain under the Labour government back in the early 2000s. They created what they called a baby bond, which was uh -huh. we're going to we're going to put some money in an account now, and it's going to sit there for 18 years, and then in 18 years the children who are born this year will get their first that will get a check. Uh, a sort of a coming of age grant, um, and this is like a basic income. This is you know a, 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 this is a step towards step towards you get it by birthright. It's your share of the world's inheritance. This is a step towards basic income. In those ways, it was really good. It was a small incremental. Who could object to this little step to basic income? But when the conservatives got in power, it was. One of the ease is one of the first things they cut, and it was one of the least politically costly things to cut because it had no constituent. The the first people who were going to benefit from it were still fifteen years from benefiting from it, so there was no constituency for it. Nobody had seen it working, and and the amount that they were going to get was going to be like one or two thousand dollars in eighteen years. So it was a gimmick. Okay, I get, I get, get $2,000 when I turn 18. I'll have a nice graduation party. You know, it's a, it, it would provide it a gimmick. So if you're going to do incrementalism, you want to make sure that you're not doing a gimmicky program and one that's too small to make, a, to make an important difference. Right. So there's, there's, there's positives and negatives to, to incrementalism. Yeah, as always. Carl, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was a really fun conversation and I really, I, I enjoyed the opportunity to dig into these weeds. I, I really had a good time. So thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. If you want to uh, talk for another two, three hours, just uh, come come up with a, a new list of questions. I'll do it all again. All right, man, you're on. All right. If you made it to the end of the episode here, I hope you found some ideas to chew on. I certainly did. And I know the episode is super long already, but there's one thing I have to add. Uh, I had one question I was really excited to ask Carl, and I completely forgot. So I figure instead I'll ask it here. And if anyone has any responses or can point me towards people who are thinking about this, let me know. Uh, the question is whether implementing a basic income sets up an incentive structure that will gradually lead to the depletion of basic income's funding pool over time. Because to pay for basic income, we'll have to set up new taxes that largely draw from wealthy portions of society. And increasing those taxes will decrease the incentive to earn at those levels. 
So if we raise the marginal tax rate on incomes above $10 million, we'll probably have fewer people earning above $10 million. If we implement a carbon tax and use the funds to pay or help pay for basic income, fewer people will use carbon. So that over time, the taxes in place will discourage people from engaging in those activities, which suggests that the overall funding from those sources will decrease. And so what happens if basic income is not a sustainable policy over time? Uh, Most folks that I've found asking this question, like Paul Mason in his book Post-Capitalism or Charles Eisenstein in Sacred Economics, actually see it as a good thing that basic income would actually be a kind of intermediary stage along with, you know, a few other measures like single health, uh, universal health care, and so on. Uh, A stage between capitalism as we know it today into a, a totally different economic atmosphere where much of what we rely on the market for today would be replaced by community scale production and gift economies, right? So collective ownership of public goods or the commons would generate an abundance of necessities like energy, for example, at low costs and even basic levels of income. And with the imperative to earn profit decreasing, people will be more able to give uh, to gift the fruits of their production to others, creating communal ties between them. So ideally then over time, basic income would fade itself out into more community centric ways of meeting our needs. But uh, the question remains, is basic income a long-term sustainable policy? And if not, what's next? All right, I'll have links to Carl's work on the show notes page. Most of his books are freely available online. And I'd love to hear people's lingering questions or concerns or criticisms uh, about basic income and how we might design an economic system that drives a fuller experience of freedom. Thank you very much, and I'll talk to you next time.